this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. Speaking of the union, Jay, we have a new union member. His name is Homeless Dad. <laughs> Perfect. Welcome, Homeless Dad. Wasn't taken. Uh, homeless. I, 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 isn't it? Aren't we supposed to say uh, unhomed? Un, unhoused. Unhoused, unhoused dad. dad. That's the pro- that's actually the proper term, I believe. Although we are a '90s podcast, so I suppose in the '90s we said homeless dad. So he's yeah, he's on uh, he's on brand. And we're talking about the union. We have a union member back with us. You know him. He's been here before. Such albums as widespread panic hamill on trial tool that's a that's just a couple of them that's a wide swath of of music right there james james yes ben harper Uh, there you go patrick testa welcome back (laughs) hi tim thanks for having me it's it's great to have you back and Knowing that you have this uh, wide array of musical tastes, I had no idea which way you were going to go with your pick. We kind of like went back and forth in the email. You were like, I'm working on it. I need another month. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. Uh, I need another month always. But (laughs) Um, I did have I do have a big list of records and, and I narrowed it down to three. And I could have picked, I would have been happy with all any of the other, any of the other three this time last, last year, I think I was leaning towards, uh, at the end of, at the end of our episode last year, I was leaning towards picking, uh, Willie Nelson for this year, but I didn't do it. So. Oh, oh, that would have been full. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. I lost track of him in the nineties. Yeah, me too. I don't, I don't know what he was doing in the nineties. Yeah. I mean, I, was, I guess he was smoking weed, but that's about <laughs> all I know. It was dealing with IRS things as well. Ah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was the news about him. Yeah. yeah. We might need to do an Outlaws of Country in the 90s roundtable. We talk about like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and like yeah. what those dudes were up to in the 90s because yeah. they all had weird 80s. And mm-hmm. then. The 90s was like, I mean, Cash obviously had a renaissance. Um, yeah. Merle and 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 yeah, a lot of uh, interesting stuff. So what album did you finally land on for this episode? So this goes along my lines of I listen to what I call soul music or what a lot of people call soul music. It doesn't have to be the definition of soul music as James Brown and moved into the the seventies and all of the uh, Curtis Mayfields and all them became what was known as soul, but music from the soul. And Chris Whitley represents that 
in the nineties um, in many ways, which I think we'll cover. Uh, this is his second full length album, solo album called Din of Ecstasy. Yes. This is a guy whose name I, I had heard, but I had never checked out the music. So I was, I, I knew he was a singer songwriter and that was about it. Um, which I think, Jay, do you, is that the same ballpark as you or had you checked him out? No, same ballpark. I was very familiar with the name and had an idea of what he sounded like. And I don't know if had it. I'm sure maybe I'd heard something. It, he was um, an artist. It seemed like he was playing Columbus like every week. I don't know. In the in the late 90s and early 2000s, it seemed like he was uh, he did, super active. He did do a lot of touring uh, after his major label stint because he was on these small labels and and doing very well for the small labels and uh he had a great following that kept going yeah all the way up till his death oh didn't want to give away the ending tim i know you got <laughs> you <don't> cover that <laughs> well yeah let's talk about um chris's history history of the band he was born in uh august 1960 in houston texas and um moved around quite a bit in his life at one point he was living in belgium for a while uh this is all before he signed his major label deal um i, th I think he was like busking in new york city in the 80s and and um ended up coming back uh when he uh got in touch or daniel lenoir actually ended up um seeing him or hearing him and uh, I think he, he hired Whitley to paint his house or something like that and moved him <laughs> in, like down to New Orleans or whatever. And um, when he was there, some he had a demo tape and he had been making like electronic music in Belgium, like dance music. And he had like given up playing guitar and stuff like that. So when he came back, he started getting back into playing guitar. And uh, somebody who was at like a party that Daniel Lanois was throwing got handed his demo and, and Dan Lanois was like, you got to check this guy out. And like the next day called Chris Whitley and said, we want to sign you. I just heard your demo. And that started a bidding war. And he got like nine labels involved trying to sign him in like 1990. Um, so the debut album living with the law comes out on Columbia records in 1991. There are a couple of singles that charted um, and uh, it was recorded in uh, Daniel Lanois home in New Orleans, his, his studio Kingsway and um, Malcolm Byrne produced it who produced like Emmylou Harris um, and some other artists. And then for the follow-up, which took, couple years um he worked with uh john custer and he's an interesting guy john custer at this point wasn't super well known he had just worked with corrosion of conformity and he he did the album um uh is it deliverance i think yeah he did deliverance and he's basically been the fifth member of corrosion of conformity for like the last 25 years every record that they do has been with him. He, he's involved with like helping with songwriting and all these things. So he's, he's a unique producer. He turned down the opportunity to work on Aerosmith's nine lives 
because he didn't want to work with a big band. He only wanted to work with like smaller artists, which is an, an interesting choice. So he, he produced the cry of love album that uh, came out in the nineties. And he worked with some other bands that were mostly from like the North Carolina area where he's from. Um, so Din of Ecstasy, which we're talking to talk about, came out on work and Columbia records in 1995. And then, um, it was actually uh, so after the passing of Chris Whitley, one of the guys who was an engineer on the record, Danny Kadar, he put an alternate version of the album on SoundCloud that has different, um, like a different mix and has like a, some of there's like effects on the record that they used. And he took all those off. It's like more, I guess, more stripped down. Patrick, have you heard that version of the record? I haven't. I'd, I think I'd like to hear that, though. I mean, yeah, there, you, there's only a couple. There's only a couple songs on the record that have any really out, out outside the, you know, or, or that's highly produced compared to anything else he did before that. I think, but yeah, I'd love to hear that. So, this record um, was followed by um, Terra Incognita for Work Records in '97, and after that he left the Columbia group and um, started working with more like indie labels. The, he, so he passed away in uh, 2005 at the age of 45 from lung cancer uh, in his hometown of Houston, Texas. And what was interesting was reading about the member of people who were like huge fans of his Everyone from like Bruce Springsteen to Don Henley, Iggy Pop, John Mayer, uh, Joe Bonamassa, Keith Richards. They all were like huge fans of his guitar playing and, and his songwriting. Um, and that's just that's just a couple of them. Uh, he also. Um, he had songs on an, like a number of soundtracks too. Uh, one of the songs on this record was on which album? What's what? uh it was on <laughs> I, I i lost where that was do you do you know what out what soundtrack it was on there was a couple ones no um, i didn't i didn't research that part of it but that during his re- major label stint they were pushing him super hard so i imagine there's even more than what's easily found he did an album of um covers called perfect day which Perfect Day is a song by Lou Reed. And there's actually a cover on this record. Some Candy Talking is a cover of the Jesus and Mary Chain. A lot of people were covering the Jesus and Mary Chain in the 90s. You had uh, the Pixies covered the Jesus and Mary Chain with head on. And uh, so I, there were some other ones that I, I can't remember, but there were a couple of uh, Pixies covers by our American artists. Or, or various artists, I should say. Or now Pixies covers, Jesus and Mary Chain covers. Anyways, how did you discover Chris Whitley, Patrick? Was this somebody that you discovered through the radio station here in Columbus? Or was this no, like a I, concert? Or I had heard him on the radio. He was on Classic Rock Radio in 1990 with Big Sky Country. That, was, that got a lot of airplay in the Northeast. Um, okay radio stations um and i 
I did follow him. Like, you know, I remember him. He was like on the Grammys. I mean, he was, it was a really big label push. Like they thought this guy was going to be Bruce Springsteen. I mean, they, they, it was the second coming of a combination of Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen and Leonard Cohen or something. And uh, so much pressure. And following, you know, Steve Ray. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they talked about Steve Ray Vaughn too, because that was right. Uh, Actually, Steve Ray Vaughn didn't die. I don't think until 91, but um, you know, he, he was kind of a Steve Ray Vaughn ish figure because he was 30 years old when he got signed. Mm -hmm. Steve Ray Vaughn, I think was 29 or something. So it was pretty close, but you could tell there's that, you know, a little bit more maturity in that artist from the get-go, you know, just like Steve Ray Vaughan, you know, had that, you know, kind of old soul that was authentic, you know. And so I heard Big Sky Country on the radio and Living living with the Law. Um, I think um, one of my friends had the cassette. I don't think I ever owned that record back then. And I didn't own Din of Ecstasy either. It was really until it wasn't until he was on the uh, small labels when he put out dirt floor that blew me away i just i just absolutely love that record from beginning to end and then i said well shoot what why did i skip over din of ecstasy so i went back and found that and it's completely different (laughs) you know all he's he's a you know national steel guitars player uh dobro player slide and almost all of his records are heavily um, covered by um, acoustic instrumentation. Not all, not, not every record, but um, this one in particular was almost all electric. So it was kind of a different animal in his catalog. So I was, I was drawn to it um, when I first listened to it and revisiting it. It's just, it's timeless for me. So it, yeah, it took me a while to kind of, become a big fan of his but i heard him on the radio first and uh knew there was something there uh you know just just hearing his voice kind of i think most uh, you would think that most people would say hey this guy's got you know not just talent he's got something maybe a little bit more than just being a great singer you know let's get into the um comments that we got over at patreon We'll share the poll results at the end of the show with um, our final vote. But uh, Chip Midnight said, this is a great album. I did a very memorable interview with Chris in a Cleveland hotel room when he was touring this album. Not a grunge album, but a lot dirtier than Living With The Law. We're the album all the way. Jeremy Amen said, sometimes I forget about Chris Whitley. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Died so young. He dumped a lot of twang for uh, this album it had a little bit of Jeff Ament vocal de- delivery mixed with some of the aggressive Jeff Buckley sounds. If I remember, we'll have to revisit, but probably a worthy album. Uh, Gavin said, I hadn't heard of Chris Whitley. So I was excited to see he's done an album with Jeff Lang, who is a personal favorite. Plus a genuine blues album makes for a different episode. Unfortunately, I found this album a bit hit and miss. Sometimes these artists are sometimes these artists just belong in a band. So I'm giving it a better EP, but I'm very happy that it's getting reviewed. And Willie Dillon said the instrument, the instrument tones on this album are sick. The production is crisp and dynamic and the guitar playing is pretty tasty. 
cool beans. <laughs> is that, what's that on the scale? Is cool beans like a love worthy album? <laughs> yeah, I, I we gotta we're gonna have to um, have a, a very uh, emergency meeting to discuss the cool beans rating because I'm not sure. Is yeah, that I, like, tend to, I tend to like my beans hot. Yeah, that's well. Yes, hot that's beans. true. I'm trying to think of a situation where cool beans right is actually the preferred way to um, eat them. Right. But I'm coming up blank. Coming up, I'm missing a any any sort of sure. There's somewhere out there. Maybe in like a salad. Maybe somebody yeah, put some definitely. sort of salad together that's got yeah. some like uh, some. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Let's get off the bean train. <laughs> Leave the bean discussion behind and let's talk about this record. Jay, yes. tell me one thing you liked about Din of Ecstasy by Chris Whitley. What I like is the record really, to me, is about capturing performance, um, both in the guitar playing, in the vocals, but also just how the band plays together. So I think from a guitar standpoint, it's really unique. There's a lot of movement to how he plays um, with the, me- the melodies are constantly like progressing and moving and changing. Uh, it can be a little complex at times actually for, for blues, uh, which I think makes it interesting. Uh, the guitar tones are also moving a lot. There's a lot of different um, use of fuzz and overdubs and even panning Sometimes it sounds like he's might be playing a strat. Other times it sounds like he's playing a hollow body. Other times it's like a steel guitar. And it's not just like within a song, you get a guitar tone. It's like throughout this, even the first, you know, intro and verse, you get this kind of melting, you know, guitar sound. It'll start sounding one way and all of a sudden it'll transition and, another guitar will kind of come in and play with it. And then that one will take over. It's just really interesting kind of weaving of tones and sounds uh, that, that keep, again, keep it moving. Also like just the way he's playing a lot of these riffs, it, he doesn't really ever play it exactly the same way every time. Like, even though it repeats, you know, it's repeating. If you really pay attention, he's playing it a little different every time he plays it, which I think, uh it's really cool i mean just it, you you can't make this on a computer ai will never make this this can only be made by a human being with their hands uh which i which i think is a lot of what this record is about same thing with the vocal you know it's he's got a lot of different voices i hear a lot of different tones and how he sings he can be deep and soulful he also can use a falsetto i hear styles that remind me of everything from like some little bit of 90s grunge and like narcotic prayer to like more hard rock stuff. I heard a little Oni Logan in there from Lynch Mob. I heard a little Doyle Bramall. I heard a little Stevie Wonder. I heard some Richie Kotzen. A voice I heard that I did not expect that really like took me back to the 90s was, uh, you know, there's some material on here that sounds a lot like the first Brad record, you know, when they get slow and soulful. Yeah, in particular, Jeremy Toback's voice mm-hmm. uh, when he sings on those Brad records. I mean, it is almost dead on with with his his tone. I can't help but think that maybe Jeremy was influenced by him. Um, that's where he was coming from um, in his solo material. 
So, so that was interesting. So there's a lot of range in the voice. It's doing a similar thing in guitar and that they're working together, obviously, um, melodically, but they're all, they're both are always moving, you know, it's, which I think is important for, if you're going to kind of explore a genre like blues, you know, to make it different, to not make it the same thing, you know, repeating the same lines over and over again. I think he's taken a fresh approach to that, that it's a lot more fluid sounding to me. Um, and then the production, I think it's been hit on in the comments, but you know, for the most part, this record sounds live, sounds like you're in the room with a band, even though there's some overdubs I think happening here, there's something about the way it's produced that makes it sound really organic. It's punchy. Um, you know, it's, you can hear everything that's going on. There's also some like atmospheric -y stuff going on, like underneath, if you really pay attention, there'll be like another guitar part or some weird sounds or a bass part. That's just kind of like there and filling in space to make it feel bigger, but not distracting or becoming like, you know, um, disorienting and just giving this extra texture and depth to it. So overall, just, I, I think, a it's a performance record to me. It's, you know, you're capturing, um, a bunch of people playing together, um, and how vocals and guitars can all kind of work together, you know, in, in sort of this really fluid kind of organic way. So that's what worked for me. What worked for you, Tim? Well, before I, I get into the, the Brad, Jeremy Toback thing, cause I completely agree. And I heard the same stuff you did. Um, I do want to talk about the guitar playing. The one guitar play you didn't mention who I hear on this record in terms of the, the quote unquote grunge sound is Kim Fayol. Um, his tone on like God thing where it's slow and heavy, but there's like a, uh, there's a wah in there and it's dirty and almost, you know, it's not metal, but it's just got that like, sabbathy kind of sound in in the like slow dirgy sounds um that was the thing i was hearing when people would talk about it sounding grungy it was definitely fail style of playing where there's a little bit of blues there's a little bit of, of hard rock metal from the 70s just it has a very specific tone to me that um he gets across really well on this record and i don't know what guitars he's using i mean i there's definitely some slide on some of these songs and i don't know if he's using an actual slide or if he's using like you mentioned a dobro or a national or something like that um the thing about the the toback and and brad comparison which i totally heard it definitely it reminded me of that first Brad record. It also reminded me of of the first, in some ways, of the first Satchel record musically, where yeah. there are these like heavy, slow riffs, and 
It's a little bit psychedelic, um, but it also made me think about why I like that because I generally don't like sort of meandering yeah. kind of, you know, experimental stuff. But when you have the right vocal on top of it is why I think it works for me. I so love Sean Smith's vocal and Chris Whitley has a really, uh, it's like, it's a, it's a bit enchanting. Like he just has this delivery and his, his um, tone, whatever it is, wherever him and Jeremy Toback is, are both at um they just have like this and i don't want to say mes- it's kind of mesmerizing where you're just like man he's do- he's got a lot of personality this you know he can add a little twang when he needs to uh, but it doesn't sound contrived it do- it sounds honest um and then you know some of the songs are just kind of great rockers not that there's not that this is like a punk rock album or anything like that i mean most of the songs are you know, there's one or two they get a little up tempo, but most of the songs are are mid to slow. Yeah, um, there's like a even when they get slow. Again, going back to that Brad record too, which I think I'm I had the same thought of like, okay, why why is this working? Why does that Brad sound work? But a lot of other bands that you would just maybe think are similar don't. And I think there's like a you mentioned, you know, it rocks a little bit. There's like an intensity or a dynamic to it it's unique like it it goes somewhere there's moments in the songs that are that are really cool and stand out and you remember um you know there's a journey to it there's a soulfulness to it that's like a little understated you know it's a little somber but it's also a little kind of like you say psychedelic or weird so just Mm -hmm. it's hitting all these like to me unique combinations of things that i like even though you know it can be a little bit of a slow kind of groove that you know it's tough to pull off yeah but i think he's he's pulling it off pretty well here there's a reason to hang in for the for those songs sometimes with a lot of bands it's like okay listen to the first verse or the first chorus and you're like okay this isn't really going anywhere so but i think with the the way that he performs and plays and like things are constantly changing and pushing and pulling and very organic. And there's a reason to stick around even when the, you know, the tempo drops. I think there's something to be said to the fact that part of that playing probably comes from the fact that he's a little bit older than the folks and coming from Houston, appreciating the blues, appreciating like acid blues acid rock like that kind of texas sound where it's a little weird um that definitely comes across in his playing patrick since you pissed this record why don't you share for us uh what works best for you well i i I think i want to comment on some of the things you guys said because first of all um what what jay said about hanging in there on those songs that's like that's like how I live, <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, there's gotta be something to it um, is, is my outlook on a lot of things um, until there isn't, you know? And, and so I guess that's an optimistic attitude or whatever, but when it comes to music, I think I've talked about this at length on discord with the DMO folks that 
there's always if 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 I end up liking something or or repeating something, there's always something there that that I can attach to. It's like it's whether it's attaching it to uh, myself or to other songs or other music. I feel like I can find similarities in everything so much easier than than differences. A lot of people like to talk about the differences and and categorizations and and um, you know dividing lines and all that i i just have a that's like a that's not my conscious that's not my subconscious thoughts my subconscious thoughts are where is it where is this connecting and so the songs that that he you know you talk about how these songs develop or they or something comes in later in the song that that gives it more depth or or power or um that seems like it happens so much in his music, even in his acoustic stuff. Um, he's got a few albums that are almost solely acoustic and it still has that same sort of soul to it. And um, a couple of quotes I have one from himself, Chris said, and this, this goes along with what Jay said too. Um, he says his whole approach to music is an articulation of spirit. So, when he's writing songs or performing songs, he's really not, he has specifically said he doesn't think about how this would translate to somebody else. He thinks about how he can articulate his spirit and the spirit that he imbibes or envelops is all those people that people were comparing him to as an, as a, on his first record, you know, Jimi Hendrix and Dylan and Cohen and, and, people that said that he was a genius and he's going to be the, he was, he's as good as Leonard Cohen ever was that kind of stuff, all that stuff. He never believed it, but he also never tried to emulate it. And he always said that he uses those as kind of like spiritual guides to help him come up with his own stuff. So Vernon Reed is another friend of his from living cover, living color. He, he loved Chris Whitley and he still works with, the Whitley family because Chris has a brother and a daughter in the business. Um, hmm. His quote on, on Chris was that he is unselfconsciously present at all times. And that's, you know, that talks about the soul. It talks about the spirit, you know? So he believes he said, he looks at Chris and listens, listens to the music, but he knows that he is involved in every aspect of what the music is saying. So that's pretty good. Um, yeah comparison too. um his other another quote from chris is he's inspired by the questions where are we and where do we belong well going back to your little bit of history on him his mom moved him his mom and dad got divorced i think i watched this documentary it's, it's called dust uh dust radio uh it's on youtube only i think and it's really good it kind of captures a lot of of where he came from, which was kind of all over the place. So he, he even says that he says, I, I, I don't know exactly where I'm from. So I'm kind of from everywhere. So his parents divorced and when he was 11 and I think his brother was nine and his mom took them to Mexico of all places <laughs> and lived on like a, an artist, an artist village or something. And he explained in this documentary, it's actually one of the opening scenes. So if anybody watches it, um, 
you'll be shocked right off the bat. But he said he he was, I think it's a playground or skateboarding or whatever, but across the street from where he and his brother would play was this saloon and he had, they would go to it. And he says, you walk in, it's one of those swinging door saloons. You go up to the bar and there's no women allowed. And you stand at the bar, you order your drink and there's a river of water and a channel in front of the bar at your feet. He goes, and that's where you piss. (laughs) You drink, you order your drink, you drink and you piss at the bar. (laughs) Wow. He goes, I was 11 and my brother was nine. No wonder he lost his mind and I lost my mind. <laughs> I guess that's so, efficient. Yeah, it's it's unusual, it's as, unusual at least yeah. as far as we are we know. But so so then um to clarify a little bit of your storyline, he moves to New York City um in his teens and he's he buys a national steel guitar. Actually, I think the story is his his girlfriend bought it for him and he's busking in the streets and he gets gigs in clubs and that kind of thing. But he runs into a guy that loves, just isn't captivated, captivated by his spirit and his music and gives him a plane, a one-way plane ticket to Belgium. So that's how he gets to Belgium. He says, I want you to come to Belgium and start a music career in Belgium. And so he moved to Belgium for 10 years. And that's where like that synth music and all that. He was in a bunch of different bands in the 80s. So I think from 81 to 90, 90, he was in Belgium. He met his uh, girlfriend and wife. I don't know if they got married and they had a baby and that's Trixie. So he was also a dad when he got signed to Columbia Records. um, Yeah, they were married because the divorce is a part of the lyrics on this record. (laughs) Right. That's right. This album is of, of the divorce. Yeah. So uh, Trixie Whitley, um, I think appears, I don't know if she's on this record or not. She appears on almost all of his records after this. So, and from the time she was four years old, she sang with him and all that kind of thing. So um, he lived in New York, Belgium, Mexico, all over the place. And this picture that you see behind me, on my wall back here <laughs> is a drawing uh, by Trixie uh, that he actually took this drawing and that's it. The, he, he's got a tattoo on his back of this specific drawing, but it's the, they end up being the CD cover for liberation or death, which was an, uh, a three song pre din of ecstasy release. And actually the song isn't on the album liberation or death, but the other two songs on the CD were on the album. Um, and she also drew the cover that's behind you, Tim. That's the cover of the album, Dinner mm-hmm. Ecstasy. So, and she has her name on there too. So um, his reality is his music, right? So his spirit and his life are his music. And just to throw one more real life thing into this, after he was dropped by Columbia, um, he got hooked up with a, a, a guy that he had known from Columbia, who was working as a, you know, um, a low man on a totem pole there that that started a, an indie label and um, asked him to put out his record. Well, <clears throat> the guy was ecstatic, of course. He's like, yeah, I'm small. I'm a brand new label. I love you. I'm going to put out the record. So 
he um, um, he put out the next record, Dirt Floor. Well, the title of that album is called Dirt Floor, and the song is about basically everything in life that you strive for and fail or anything you do on a daily basis. And the, there's always a dirt floor beneath you to land on. So that was the concept and that was his record. And they went to his dad's barn and recorded that entire album in one day, just laying on the floor recording uh, that record, put it out. Wow. And he sold, he sold two more records than he did for his <laughs> to Den of Ecstasy and Terra Incognito from from uh, Columbia Records, the two records prior. So I think his his soul speaks through his music, and that's where I think uh, on this record in particular, you guys talk about the guitar playing and and how the, the vocals work with the guitar. That's exactly what I think he's going for, and I think that's where he knows he can thrive. So he absolutely never wanted to deviate from that and try to put out a pop record or try to put out anything that would uh, jeopardize his focus on being able to pull that part of him out and put it onto a record. So yeah, that's where I, that's why I love it. I mean, it's, you know, when it comes to the songs, there's not a lot of catchiness. There's no hardly any riffs. There's, no uh i mean how many courses are on the record maybe three you know and some of the courses are one line <laughs> um it's uh there's not a lot of hooks there's not a lot of things that that are just gonna there's, make it taste good you know you you just gotta find the the meat of it and that's what I love about listening to this record. And it gets better, just like the songs. It gets better as the record goes on. I think the second half of the record is is superior to the first half of the record. Interesting. I think uh, the, the, what's interesting about this record is it took me a couple times to like digest it. But from the first song, like you kind of get what's going to happen because that riff is so broken and disjointed and it's playing notes that don't sound like they should go together but they do there's like a lot at a very strange riff but you hear the repetition in that riff so it's like yeah this is this is going to be complicated but also like not complicated i don't know how to put it yeah <laughs> it's simple you're right there is simplicity to it somewhere yeah. in a weird way it reminded me of uh i mentioned richie Kotzen, and he has a band now called winery dogs and that band is like, it's proggy. It's super precise. It's very glossy. The, but there's also like this approach on like how to take soulful blues rock with, you know, some heart and then play it in a way that's like, you know, a little off kilter, a little like more extreme, a little more, um, I guess, interesting musically kind of. So there's a spirit to it. And, and just some similarities too, I think in the voice and stuff that reminded me of that of Richie Cotton in particular and sort of that band. And it's like, there's some glue between the conceptually, like what's going on between like what to do with blues music and soul music. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And it's, yeah. it's interesting because some of the tones on here, um, like on no, 
like that almost sounds like some of the heavier like new like what is it the rock revivalist bands of like you know dirty honey and and mm-hmm. rival sons and like that sort of stuff like this this is in a way like kind of uh way ahead of its time in terms of its sound sure the guys that the guy that um signed him at columbia said the reason he signed him was because he wasn't country he wasn't blues he wasn't even alternative and he wasn't even really rock yeah (laughs) he's like something in between all of that and he he said we got our new kids on the block and all that i don't think he said them but you know the bands that sell 10 million records he thought this guy would be able to sell records for 20 years Mm-hmm. And um, that's why he signed him. He believed in him, loved him, and and this record ruined his career <laughs> mm-hmm. because it had no hits on it or no singles. Interesting. He kind of predates in in a way for the '90s in terms of like guys being in bands, being solo artists, like Jeff Buckley. Like you know, yeah. What I mean? There's some similarities to Jeff Buckley too. Here, I kept thinking yeah. of him. He's almost there's like, like a proto Jeff Buckley. Yeah, there's like a because Jeff Buckley stuff can be complicated too, uh, from a guitar standpoint and like mm-hmm. off kilter. And obviously, vocally, it's different, but there's something about that, like um, exploring like how to push that sound further and making it more interesting and but not losing like you know the heart of it the soul of it they're both also very comfortable with quiet like yeah. there are parts of that of grace the jeff buckley album that are so hushed mm-hmm. and and chris whitley does that as well he's willing to take a lot of risks in how he presents his voice essentially because it, yeah. you you know you're pretty exposed at that point when you're that when it's that quiet and then can have these big explosions of sound and and it really more intensity it's just the intensity grows yeah there's not a lot of open g chords <laughs> on this <laughs> it's not a lot of like you know big major chord it's a, it's it's a lot of strange um keys and things that i'm you know it, you mentioned vernon him being uh, vernon reed being a fan there's stuff that's like more like his playing yeah than you would ever expect it's very experimental you know there's a lot, a of, lot of uh there's a lot of confidence that comes through too like playing guitar like this as you listen to it you're like i'm imagining trying to play this stuff and you don't know where it's going to land and being like you can just tell like 
he just knows whatever comes out is going to be right. You know what I mean? Like there's no, right. <laughs> like I got to make this perfect. And you know, if I, uh, I'm sure that it feels like there weren't a lot of takes here. This was just like the band was jamming and feeling it. And like the way he's playing, like stuff just flows out. And I mean, you hear it with like great players too, like Steve Ray Vaughn, like we mentioned where they just can't play a bad note. Even weird notes are still cool. Like, right. you're like, oh, that's unusual. Okay. There's just like no bad notes that are going to come out of them. Even on like a couple of songs here where he's using acoustic, like there's some little bits and parts. Like if you picked it apart, you're like, oh, he didn't finger that chord right. Like you can kind of hear like it doesn't actually ring correctly, but it, I'm analyzing it as a guitar player, but like you would know, it's just part of the song. You know what I mean? Like you, right. You just accept it. Is there anything that doesn't work for you on the record, Jay? Um, the, there's a couple of moments of the production to me, like takes a left turn that I don't quite get. So, uh, the biggest one is some candy talking. You go from like this kind of loose room sound. You feel like you're, you know, you're in there watching and listening to a performance. And then that song sounds like a four track bedroom demo. Like it just had a totally different sound. Um, even the songwriting on that is like, it's sharper. It's like more That's of a the pop cover. format. Yeah, there's like a, it stands out. Like when you hear right. that song, you're like, okay, this doesn't feel like it should be on this record. Tone is a lot different than the rest of the record. It's very like, yep. like you said, four track sounding. Yep. God thing is another one. Even though I think on its own, it's I like it. They do this thing where they pan hard pan the drums left on that track, and then everything else kind of gets repositioned. Like I said, on its own, it's fine. But in the course of listening to the record, all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, what, what's going on? Why are we? It's the room just changed. Like I was in the room with you. We were like. Yeah, Listen I kind of feel like that's, now all of a sudden do like, that. everybody just rearranged everything and I'm like <laughs> sitting backwards or something. It's just, yep. it's disorienting and I'm not sure why. Like, I don't know that that song wouldn't have just worked being mixed like the rest of the record. Yeah. So those, those were a little, little weird for me. Um, yeah. The material is, uh, you know, it's a little complex. It's, it's challenging. It's, yeah. It's challenging. It's not easy to grasp onto some of these songs at first. I think I was hooked because I like the tone so much of the first track. I liked how he was playing guitar. I liked the sound of the guitar. I liked the sound of his voice. I liked what he was, the choices he was making in terms of like vocal melodies. So I was really hanging on to that uh, sonically to get me through the first couple of listens because you're not going to necessarily like really grab onto a song where you're like, Oh yeah, I remember that one. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That, that, 
there's that part. And I remember that chorus, like my experience was not that it took me <clears throat> several listens to kind of get to that point. So not everybody's going to get there. You know, I think you have to be sort of like drawn into the performance, maybe to, to get to the point where the songs start to really kind of take hold and you, you know, are you're picking up now on the melodies or remembering them and you're understanding them as songs. Um, so I think that would just be my other thing that isn't going to work for everybody. And, and for me, it didn't work as well on the first couple of listens. It took me some time. Anything that worked for you? Uh, like you was thrown off by that production choice. Cause I feel like if you're going to hard pan, you hard pan the album, like what Ted, Ted Leo did on that one record. Like you, you have to stick with that. Cause it's, if you're bouncing around, it's weird. And I really like that song. That ending part is with the, it's just such a great, again, like, um, uh, not Reagan Hagar. Who's the drummer or guitar player from, uh, from, brad not stunk no i'm not brad um satchel is it kevin wood was he the guitar player oh man you're putting me on the spot i think maybe <laughs> but he had like that wah bluesy um that's like very similar to his playing yeah. where it's like sean it's, smith yeah yeah it's very much in that that realm but i just don't like the production choice <laughs> on it and i agree like i mean this took me a while to get into it also switching from speakers to headphones made a huge difference because the the thickness of the bass there's some like really really deep low end on this record and i read it in the credits that the bass player um alvin gavart has bass and bass pedals and low end noise all credited to him. <laughs> so they, they definitely experiment with a lot of different bass sounds. Um, so I, I do like that, but uh, yeah, it is, it's a, it's just a hard record to get into if you're not really interested in getting into it. Like I could see a lot of people listen to this once just being like, I don't get it and never listening to it again. But I think because we had the, you know, obligation to listen to it more than once that it, you kind of go oh okay this is yeah this is going on that's what yeah that's what i mean i mean uh, just taking into context of uh, the world we live in now and how we consume music I, I you know often we have the benefit of like okay we're committed to listen to this because we're going to spend time with it that's the whole point of the podcast right. normal people don't have that commitment so it's just so easy to be like oh yeah i don't get it this you know where's the hook move on so I think it's a challenge. It's going to be a challenging listen for folks who aren't committed to uh, or aren't hooked by the performance and sound first. Right. Because as weird as this is going to sound, some of the riffs on here remind me of like, like Van Halen three. Like yeah. they're these very like technical, but soulful, weird things happening. Yeah. And that's the only like comparison that I can make. That's the strangest comparison to Van Halen three. <laughs> I've never made a Van comparison to Van Halen three regarding anything. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew he was like a steel, like Dobro slide player just from the, I think promotional photographs and a little bit of things I heard here, here right. and there. I had no idea he was this good of just a, just a guitar player. I mean, I, I hadn't heard of him, I guess, in that context. Right. Um, so I, I, I was, was used to guitar guy. 
Yeah, I was genuinely blown away by the electric guitar playing on this record. It's it's next level. Yeah, he he's quoted it also about that topic. Um, he says, I feel ripped off when I see an entertainer that I don't believe that's trying to entertain me. I think it's more authentic to be self selfish and just present your soul, present your your spirit. And he, he went on to say, um, I don't known as a great guitarist. I'm sick of that bullshit. <laughs> So I think he was hearing that from the very beginning. And so um, the other part of, of his early career, you know, when he's, when he moved into this um, Dobro national steel slide thing, uh, even with uh, living with the law of this first record. And then this one is, he's got the same kind of approach to the guitar, whether it's does have an electric guitar with a resonator on it, that it looks like a national steel resonator. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw that on, there's an, uh, I think it might've been on the, f- the first album tour. He was on Arsenio Hall and there's a performance on YouTube of him um, using that guitar, like electric guitar. But he has this, he also kind of invented a slide, which in the documentary, you'll see the guy um, that helped him build them. He cut, he took the handlebars off of a bicycle, metal handlebars, cut them into two inch slides basically sanded them down but then he would he had he wore a ring so he cut a divot into the ring or into the um slide so that when he puts his finger on his ring would would not be inside the slide so it was out the back but then with the way he utilized that he would use it as a slide and then when he wanted to play chords he would just take that slide reverse it so the thing was on the other side then he can couple his fingers with still with the slide out the back and play the chords and then flip it back and keep doing the slide and he's apparently the uh he was the first guy to do that but then a couple of um companies capitalized on that by making it their own and he's never got credit for that i'm, at least I'm that's confused where does this slide go is this like a wolverine situation <laughs> <laughs> so it goes on his finger yeah and basically it covers the the bottom half of his finger and then it wraps it has a ring around this part of his finger so this part is exposed so then uh he he could wear a ring here but then he could also flip it over and then his finger can bend because the slide would come out here mark fascinating huh yeah. so you, you would see it see him playing and you could see him like flip it on his leg he like reaches down and flips it over on his leg and then he starts playing chords it's pretty it was pretty mesmerizing to watch him play i did get a chance to um interview or uh i've recorded him i didn't do the interview but i recorded in live in studio at at the radio station i worked at and uh it was during the dirt floor tour and he was tra- he had traveling around the country in a car by himself, smoked like a chimney. I mean, lit one cigarette after the other, you know, and was in the studio not smoking, but had to run out to go have another smoke. Um, probably the smelliest guy I ever encountered in the studio. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, Ani, Ani DeFranco would have been would was 
probably a good uh she was definitely the smelliest woman i ever had in the studio so they same thing they both toured in a car and around the country by themselves so i get it you know you don't have yeah. access to shower all the time anyways great guy he when i met him he was so focused and you could tell he was just not interested in in, in the business of of the music the commerce part of music at all it just was he just to shoot it didn't even let it into his world and so he believed that if he ever did something like that if he ever wrote a, a pop song or put out a pop record that he would lose um what he did have which was that spirit and capital or you know reaching into his soul to play music um the other thing i wanted to mention there won't be any negative, right? You're not going to, you, there's not. Well, I mean, I what, don't. Or wouldn't be, there's, is, is there anything? That I mean, I guess, I, I guess if, to answer that part of your podcast, I think, sure, there's, it's hard to, it's definitely hard to get through the record for the first time. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't even, like I said, I came to this record probably the third album that I had listened to by him. And then I listened to, he did a jazz album with Medeski Martin and Wood, which was way out there. And he did a, he did a record with DJ Logic too, which was one of the very first guys to ever have a scratching DJ on a, on a blues rock record. Um, but this one was probably the hardest to get into because of what you guys are talking about. It's just, and it's slow and, parts and lots of songs start off slow and it gives you the sense that you're not going to like it you know or, or that you're not going to be able to sit down long enough to pay attention to it um it it's a, like it's a real challenge but i i love challenges i think that's what what beauty and art is for me is the challenge of um trying to find where it fits into your brain where it fits into your soul where it comes from all that stuff. So I don't have anything bad to say other than, yeah, it's, if you, when I put it on, sometimes there's, oh yeah, there's two slow songs in a row feeling, you know, I know everybody has that feeling sometimes, but that's as, that's about as far as I go on um, what didn't work. I do uh, love Din. That song could have been a hit. Don't you think Din? That, that one in particular has a hook to it. <laughs> I don't know that any song I I I mean yeah I guess it kind of gets into like a dinosaur junior territory almost with its with the yeah. sound there was a there yeah sometimes the guitars on here there's there's a dinosaur junior vibe to the guitar playing on that and then I heard some little bit of smashing pumpkins on the second song just no tone mm -hmm. and like how he played I was like oh damn that sounds like early smashing pumpkins
I was trying to think of the the song. It's um, Mr. Brown, the first song on the Satchel album, the EDC. Yeah, which is in terms of like slowness. I mean, that's a very interesting way to open an album. Is this very slow, you know, building but never sort of crescendoing song. Um, and that's how a lot of this record is. It's like just, and it's got this sort of psychedelic vibe, but it's heavy. Like it's a dark psychedelic sound that you just did not hear at the time. That was, and combined with the unique vocals, that was what made it so interesting. Cause I was definitely not listening to anything similar to what Satchel was doing in 91. And I, right. I don't know that if I heard this record in 95, I'd be able to comprehend like, this is a blues record. Like, <laughs> right. Where's the dinner? Like, you know, we're yeah. expecting like some very traditional sounding blues. And this is, it's in like, it has the soul to put it of blues, but it's just presented in a completely um, unique way. That's much more, progressive rock in, in some sense it's like yeah it'd be like uh if robert johnson fronted uh gentle giant i don't know how else to <laughs> well it's like poetry really you know it's poetry with guitar and voice so yeah uh, din din was uh apparently in the featured in the movie permanent midnight that's what it was yeah <laughs> Oh, I, I I did find those other ones that you were. Uh, he's got a song on Thelma and Louise. Yep, Thelma and Louise. And, and so I married an axe murderer. Also, oh, which I, that was a good soundtrack, right? It's a yeah, great it's a soundtrack. soundtrack. Yeah. It's got the laws. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> 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 um. Let's get into our our ratings for this record. We'll share the poll results from Patreon. But Jay, where do you land? Is this a worthy album, a better EP, or a decent single? Worthy album. I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I was expecting to get it more of a straight up, you know, blues record with a, maybe a little bit of a '90s production, and it's it's a lot more than that. And I think it's something that. You know, the more you listen to it, the more you're going to get out of it. So worthy album for me. Where did you land? Well, like you, I I think based on the fact that it was a solo artist rather than a band, I had the preconceived notion that this was either going to be like just a guy with an acoustic guitar or it was going to be like Johnny Lang and like that teenage blues rock that was happening. Kenny Wayne Uh, Shepard. Remember those guys? Forgot about that. Yep. That was a thing. That was a thing. And, um, you know, those were interesting, but I was like, I never connected with that. I was, I connected more with the Jeff Healy band than I did with those guys. So this was, this is kind of, um, a revelation in terms of hearing what was happening with blues in the middle of the nineties. So it's definitely a worthy album for me. I wonder if, uh, if I would have gotten this album in 95, Sometimes I'm listening to it. I'm like, this would have been my favorite record in 95. And other times I'm listening to it. I'm like, I don't know if I would have got it. Right. How do you I, think I, you would have reacted? I don't think I got it in yeah. 95, like I said, but I, it did, it 
didn't exemplify blues in the 90s in my opinion i'd spent a lot of times with blues in the 90s but i think blues in the 90s kind of went a little bit more traditional um and but chris whitley just was his own thing i don't it, it, you know we you come up with jeff healy that's kind of an interesting uh comparison uh although he had a you know big hit single right off the bat so he was you know, he had expectations all along, whereas Chris Whitley just didn't, he worked without any expectations, whether they, they existed or not. He worked, <laughs> worked without them. <laughs> so I don't think he's, I mean, it's, you know, the blues part of it just is the feel and the, in the way that the guitar is, is attacked and the slide and, you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's a worthy album i don't i personally like dirt floor better as a as as my favorite interesting album by chris whitley but uh it was also the first one i really got into too so you know, i do want to say uh i i legit like the jeff healy band i have see the light on vinyl hell to pay i, I like that bought that cassette like when like that was one of my very first cassettes that i bought when i was started getting into music um, because they are the, if you remember the Jeff Healy band is the band in the movie roadhouse there. They play the bar yeah. uh, where um, uh, there are coolers and there are bouncers. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, that's where the albums all around and surprising or not, or I'm not sure if this is surprising or not, but the, the Patreon agreed with us. Uh, the community voted 75% worthy album. And this math does not check out. 13% better EP, 13% decent single for a total of 101%. Right. <laughs> Apparently you can't do um, uh, anything, you know, like a 0.1 or, you know, like some point something for voting percentages. Because it should be twelve and a half percent, not thirteen percent. That's why I'm not so big on math. I mean, it's supposed to give us all the answers, yet it can't it, give us that simple answer. Round up, <laughs> yeah, rounding error. Uh, we need to thank you, Patrick, for bringing this record to us and um, bringing it to the community. Because I, I honestly, I would have never checked this out if if you had not brought it to us. So. You're welcome. And I'd like to thank you for continuing to do this wonderful podcast. And uh, I want to implore all of the listeners out there that have never supported the podcast to try to do this. Make an effort. These guys are doing it. They've been doing it a long time. And boy, do they give up a lot of their lives for um, good stuff and participation from, from the community as well. And uh, you guys are really appreciated, and I I think that um, anybody that listens to the podcast knows that this isn't that you guys put real effort into this and and put your expertise um, into it. So it's it's well worth supporting, and uh, I hope that somebody out there hears that and says yes, I will support this time and get. Come you hear that, board. Bob Iger? Bob Iger? <laughs> Attica. Attica. Hey, you got homeless dad. 
hey if if we've got homeless dad we're unstoppable yeah we'll keep showing up as long as we you know add a homeless dad every week we're good let let me throw this dad let me throw more thing out there about uh, about this record if you liked the if you're a listener out there that liked the aspect of it feeling like it's just a an exploration of a soul something that's live recorded almost sounds live recorded there's a whole record label devoted to this called Arhuli Records. And the guy that started Arhuli Records just was out looking for Lightning Hopkins. He traveled down from Germany all the way down to Texas to find Lightning Hopkins because he wanted to record him. And he ended up finding a whole slew of artists of Texas blues, Cajun, Zydeco artists, uh, all kinds of great stuff. And he recorded them live and put them out on his own record label and, and existed for a few decades so if anybody just loves that raw aspect something that uh people sing with their soul uh play traditional instruments and um and you know technically blues based all of those styles are blues based uh check out our huli records uh and you will find all kinds of great stuff how's that spelled um a-r-h-o-o-l-i-e i believe okay Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you for all of that. And thank you for sharing sure. uh, the info because yeah, this is definitely worth investigating a little bit more. Um, cool. If you would like to investigate our podcast. <laughs> I, <laughs> you made it this not, far. I mean, hopefully you're not Jack Smith because I assure you, I can count for my whereabouts on, on January 6th. Um, if you would like to, uh, if you're interested in this podcast, you'd like to join us and join our community, especially over our Discord community, uh, where we talk about all sorts of things uh, related to music and and also uh, UFOs. So if you're really into <laughs> UFOs, we have a burgeoning uh, uh, community of conspiracy theorists who wear we're tinfoil not, hats. We're, we're living in reality, man. Join we're us. We're here. <laughs> We're just telling you what your tax dollars are being spent on. That's all. Sure, sure. I'll keep stoking that fire. (laughs) You guys can keep ignoring it. Okay. Uh, Okay, Unsolved Mysteries. Just calm down. So, Patreon is where (laughs) you go to uh, support the podcast, dmounion.com or digmeoutunion.com. It's also where you can read the weekly box newsletter, our Substack newsletter that goes out every week with new music releases, uh, books, movies, documentaries related to 80s, 90s, and aughts music, plus a couple of reviews of uh, new releases every week. And you can go to digmeoutpodcast.com to sign up for the Box Newsletter. It's also where you can suggest an album for our monthly album review polls. Last but not least... Apple Podcast is where you go to leave some positive feedback for the podcast. Five stars. That, that's five uh, stars. that would be five stars. Uh, <laughs> that's the minimum uh, required <laughs> to leave a, a review. You mm-hmm. can, if you want to give us ten stars, that would be overkill. Five would be enough. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that's it for Jay. I'm Tim. We're out. We're back next week with another episode. Dig me out. <laughs>